You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com. Good afternoon. Welcome to Intelligent Talk with Ralph McElvenny. Join us every Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events. Okay, welcome to Intelligent Talk. The website is intelligenttalk.com. I'm very happy to have as my guest Mr. Gerald Shoemaker. Um, Did I pronounce that, Mr. Shoemaker? Okay. Uh, Jeff Schumacher. Uh-huh. Jeff Schumacher. And could you give your website, please? Could you just spell out your website so people have it? Sure. So uh, I work at the Mob Museum, which the address for which is themobmuseum.org. And then you have your own website, too, right? JeffSchumacher.com? Jeff? I, I do. JeffSchumacher.com. JeffSchumacher.com. Yes. Okay, great. So we're here to discuss your book, um, Howard Hughes, Power, Paranoia, and Palace Intrigue. Howard Hughes has interested me since oh, since I was a child. I've always found him a fascinating person. He lived from 1905 to 1976. He was the richest person in the world. He really made his money through a drilling bit that his father created, a company in Texas that was used to uh, for drilling oil wells all over the world, and he used that money to uh, do Hughes Aviation and also to do, enter the movie business. And Hughes Aviation did some amazing things, a number of speed records. I, th- I think also the moon surveyor for landing on the moon was done by Hughes. So just a fascinating person. How did you get interested in this uh, book, this topic, uh, Mr. Schumacher? Well, you know, it's interesting. I had uh, I had done a, a history of modern Las Vegas. Uh, it's called Sun, Sin, and Suburbia. And that book included a chapter on Howard Hughes because of his influence on Las Vegas. Okay. You'll recall he, he came to Las Vegas uh, in 1966 and started investing in the casino business. And he also bought a lot of property here. He bought uh, an airport. He bought a television station. He really was the biggest news in the entire state for about four years. So his influence on the city was very uh, significant. So I included a chapter about him in that book. So it, it, what I realized, though, is that in looking for, a, like, my next book, that I could easily do a full book about Howard Hughes um, simply through the lens of his influence on the, our city here in Las Vegas. And so I did that. And, uh, of course, I had to cover all of his life. And, you know, people are interested in all different facets of Howard Hughes. Uh, so the book is more of a, a general biography. But uh, I look always looking for those uh, ways to uh, to bring it back to Las Vegas, and it's not hard to do. He had a long history with our city. Yes, I'm going to get. I want to get to that that period between '66 and '70. Just a, a brief more of an introduction. He put Noah Dietrich in charge of Hughes Tools. As I said before, the money from that was used to do the movie business. He won, uh, as you mentioned in your book, several records, the Harmon Trophy for fastest. I think flight from west to east coast. Is that right? And also around the world. Yeah, he really took an interest in aviation. Uh, in the 1930s, he, he made a movie called Hell's Angels, which was kind of a World War One epic. And uh, in that, there's all kinds of amazing flying scenes, you know, uh, uh, gunfights between these little airplanes that they used at that time. And he uh, became very interested in aviation. Uh, there was a time when a lot of people were interested in aviation and they wanted to set speed records and distance records and all kinds of stuff. So 
Hughes created a company uh, called Hughes Aviation, uh, which was uh, at the time a subsidiary of, of Hughes Tool Company. And he started designing, along with a group of engineers he hired, um, a bunch of airplanes that he wanted to go faster than anybody ever had gone before. And he did that. He, he set the record for uh, lands, you know, for airspeed record um, in 1936. And then in 1938, he flew around the world in record time. And so he, he just, he blew that record out of the, out of the water. And, uh, you know, so he, in 1938, he was probably the most famous person in the world. Uh, there were ticker tape parades in New York and in his hometown of Houston and in, I think, Chicago. And he was just the biggest, uh, the biggest name in the country. And this was long before, you know, many of his other exploits. Right. So, as you said, your book focuses on what is a very fascinating period, 66 to 70. He has an interest in TWA Airlines. He sells his TWA stock at something like over $500 million. He comes to Las Vegas, 1966. As you say in your book, he checks into the Desert Inn, the top floor. They eventually want him out, and he buys essentially that hotel and I think five others and becomes one of the biggest employers in the state. Could you tell me why he came to Las Vegas? What was there, What was his thinking behind that? Yeah, so, you know, there's a lot of speculation about why he came to Las Vegas at the time he did. But the most practical uh, explanation is he had uh, uh, sold his stock, his shares in TWA, and he received a check for $546 million, the single biggest check ever written at the time. And, of course, guess who was very interested in that $546 million? The tax man. <laughs> right. So he's looking he's looking for ways to reduce his tax burden and one of the ways to do that is to reinvest that money. Okay. So he comes to Las Vegas, which was a city he was well acquainted with going back to the 40s and which he had always loved and he he saw Las Vegas as an opportunity to uh invest some of that money to avoid taxes and also to uh you know kind of change change things up a little bit within his empire. He um, and when he first came to Las Vegas, he was not interested in buying casinos. That was not his focus. Um, but then uh, when he got here, you know, he moved into the Desert Inn Hotel, and, and he didn't want to leave. <laughs> and uh, the owners wanted him to leave because they had a lot of high rollers that were coming to town, and they needed to put them up in rooms. And uh, so there was a standoff. And Hughes ultimately solved the standoff by buying the hotel. Could you tell us so, about uh, his his sort of Mormon assistants? He liked the Mormons because he thought they were very pure, right? Because they didn't smoke and drink, and he thought they were good assistants for him, right? Well, I think that's part of it, but I I, I think the bigger the real again, you know, one of the things that that you have to deal with when you're talking about Howard Hughes is separating sort of myths from reality. Okay, and there's so because of his secretive nature. There were so many myths about him. Now, that said, he did have a lot of Mormon aides. He had Mormon aides in his, who dealt with him personally, and then he had others who were working in Los Angeles on various uh, things there, especially uh, the management of the Hollywood actresses whom he had on retainer. So uh, one of the reasons why he had so many Mormon aides, though, is because one of his right-hand men, one of his top executives, was a man named Bill Gay. And Bill Gay was a Mormon, and he became kind of a pipeline, bringing young Mormons from uh, Brigham Young University and from Utah in general 
uh, into the you know into the corporation, into the company, and um, so Bill Gay trusted them. Bill Gay believed that they would uh, be you know loyal to him, and as you noted, uh, you know they did not smoke, they did not drink, and so they were a lot easier. They were more dependable, right? I mean, they were. It wasn't. They were more likely to show up for work on time, uh, and they uh, were less likely to do anything to upset the apple cart, you know. Now, Hughes, um, his actual personal aides were a mix. He did have uh, a number of Mormon aides, but he also had non-Mormons as well. One of my sources for my book was a man named Gordon Margulis, uh, who was a Catholic. Uh, He was one of the closest people to Hughes in that period of time. So it wasn't like it was 100%, you know, Mormons around him. I just want to set the stage because I think in your book we see a progression of Hughes where he basically controls his aides and as things go on, especially as he breaks his hip later in London, he then becomes sort of a prisoner of the aides and, and Bill Gay's salary goes from 100000 a year as you write to $500,000 a year and so does Chester Davis and uh, Nadine Henley, I think it was part of that troika who essentially take, takes control of Hughes near the end. But at this time, I guess he was sort of in control of the Mormons, Could you, or his aides rather. Could you describe what his setting was like on the Desert Inn? Like how many people would he have on duty at one time? I know he, he was mostly in his bedroom, it was blacked out. Did he have jars of his urine around too and uh, filled? I mean, that was that. Could you just set the stage what it was like in his in his bedroom? Sure, sure. So, so Hughes moved into the ninth floor of the Desert Inn. He took the entire ninth ninth floor, and uh, but he only stayed. That was the penthouse floor at the time. Okay. And uh, you know he wanted that for security reasons. He didn't want you know people above you know and below him. He also bought, and ultimately uh, leased out the eighth floor. Uh, just so he wouldn't have people, you know, somehow on the eighth floor listening to him or, you know, planting bugs or whatever. So, uh, but he only stayed basically in one suite on that floor, about a 15 by 17 foot room, not a particularly fancy room. And that was where he spent most of his time. And then the aides were out in the remainder of the floor. And Hughes was, you know, at that time, he was he was very reclusive. Um, he... His obsessive-compulsive behavior was really getting the best of him. Uh, for example, he did not want the aides to dust the room. Okay. Now you might say, well, you know, he was kind of a clean freak, right? So why wouldn't he want them to dust the room? Well, in his mind, the problem with dusting is it kicked up all the dust, right? right? So <laughs> better to leave it be uh, rather than kicking it up into the air where it can be ingested and uh, cause problems. So his rationale was a little bit you know, a little bit twisted. Um, and he communicated with people, uh, uh, he communicated directly with his aides. So there were about six or eight aides whom, with whom he uh, interacted on the ninth floor of the Desert Inn. However, he, no one else came and saw him. So everything else, was, all his other business was conducted either by telephone or by memo. And he was famously wrote uh, many, many handwritten memos on yellow legal pads at that time and sent those out, uh, and then he received memos in, return, in reply. He also was on the phone a great deal. Uh, but uh, I think it would be uh, uh, fair to say that he was already uh, largely under the control of his aides in Las Vegas. All right. there, were, there, were, there were times in Las Vegas when, you know, the control of his, the drugs that he was taking, the, you know, the pain-killing drugs, um, uh, was controlled by the aides to the point where they could control him. 
Uh, and uh, that was what, you know, sort of the slippery slope that, that uh, got worse and worse uh, as his life progressed into the 70s. Just a quick question as to what you thought maybe the root of his sickness was. I mean, I, I think in your book you mentioned that his mother was afraid of germs. There are people that have speculated that his, his, he hit his head on his numerous airplane crashes, including the one right after World War II when he was testing that new plane and crashing in Beverly Hills by the, by the golf course. I mean, do you have any idea what – was this sort of psychosis within him for a long period of time and just got worse as he got more dependent upon drugs? And, and how sane was he? Because he was able to talk to Bob Mayhew, his representative in Las Vegas, every day, and he was able to, to – to, to make deals and, and, and be loose at least for a time. So do you think he just got more crazy as things went along? Do you have any idea what the root cause of it was? Well, you know, root causes for Hughes' behavior have been, you know, debated for, for decades. And uh, I think that clearly his his germophobia, if you will, um, can be traced back to his mother, who was was, you know, definitely someone who was obsessed with germs. She was obsessed with her young son getting sick and she was quite irrational about that and i think certainly that had an influence on him um he but i think an obsessive compulsive disorder is something that uh you know that is more of a chemical imbalance right it's something we almost can address today but it was not addressed during his lifetime he did not have the proper treatment or medication at that time to deal with that the way we might do it today so he definitely had an obsessive compulsive and uh, behavior um, going way back, uh, but I think that was all exacerbated after the 1946 crash. When after which he became uh, dependent on painkillers. He it, the the plane crash could have easily killed him. He had broken bones. He had third degree burns. He had great deal of problem. He was in the uh, hospital, and doctors were starting to talk about maybe he's not going to make it through the night. Well, he did make it through the night, and he recovered very quickly. Uh, but what ended up happening is he became uh, uh, addicted, basically, to uh, to painkillers. And this was at a time when a lot of doctors didn't believe that you could become addicted to painkillers. So Hughes was breaking new ground in a whole other area. <laughs> right. right. And, uh, and he, designed, he designed the first hospital bed, I believe, too, in 46, right, when he was in that recovering from that accident. He, he did. He, he sort of invented the hospital bed we know today, which is one that raises up and lays, lays down. So rather than, you know, if you want to sit up in bed uh, like you do at home, you know, unless you have one of these really fancy beds, you just have to get a bunch of pillows. That's, that's how they did it in the hospital as well. Hughes thought, why don't we make this a bed where it raises up in the back? And so we, we take that for granted today, but... Uh, was something that he uh, definitely uh, played a role in, in developing. I just want to mention uh, one thing you write in your book, and then, I'll, then I want to ask you about Bob Mayhew. Um, sort of a fun extra section of your book is about when he buys a CBS affiliate in Las Vegas, the KLAS, and use it essentially yeah. as almost like a VCR. He tells a guy to what, what movies to pick, when to stop in the middle, rewind. I mean, it's sort of funny that people were watching this station thinking it was a legitimate station. It was really just, just a service for Howard Hughes for his movie pleasures at night. You know, especially at late night, right. because Hughes had, you know, his sleeping habits were very unusual, and so he were he was often up uh, between, you know, midnight and 6 a.m. when most of us were asleep, and, uh, and you know, um, TV stations back in those days, and, and maybe even today, often would play movies at night, because they had a low, you know, they didn't have much staff, and they didn't have many people watching, so they would just show movie after movie. And, and Hughes uh, was a big fan of this. He liked to watch these movies in the middle of the night. 
but they weren't showing the movies he wanted to see. <laughs> right. So he be started demanding, uh, this is before he bought the station, he was demanding that, you know, the certain movies be played. Uh, he, the guy who owned the station at the time, Hank Greenspun, had received loans from Hughes, so he felt somewhat, you know, um, obligated to, to do this. But ultimately, he was bought the TV station, at which point then he was able to dictate exactly which movies would be shown. There were a couple of occasions where he fell asleep in the middle of a movie, and he would wake up, and, you know, he wanted to see the rest of the movie so that he had missed, so he would call up the station and have them rewind the film and uh, show it over. <laughs> so if you're, if you're a, a person out there just in Las Vegas, you know, and you're a late-night person, and the movie suddenly starts over again at the beginning uh, or, you know, wherever he wanted it shown, that had to be awfully strange. You're like, what in the world is going on with this TV station? Absolutely. One of the things your book really raises, which is kind of an interesting question, is really how hard is it to run these these giant companies? Because someone like Howard Hughes was in bed, drugged up most of the time, and these companies were run fairly well. And I guess one of the reasons why he could do that is he had good aides, and his principal aide in Las Vegas with Robert Mayhew. And you bring out some interesting stuff in your book about his background, like how he worked for um, Starvos Niarchos, who was Onassis's rival, to stop a deal that, that Onassis had with the Saudis. Could you discuss Mayhew and whether he thought he was a competent aide and what kind of a job he did for him in Las Vegas in buying those properties? Sure. So uh, Bob Mayhew, uh, you know, was a person who, uh, during World War II, had uh, was very involved in counterintelligence, counterespionage uh, for the U.S. government. Uh, then he uh, became an FBI agent and then later uh, did work for the CIA. He was not in the CIA, but he was. He would do what they called cutout jobs. And what that meant is he would do the dirty work that the CIA did not want to be linked to. Okay. So they would they would pay him to go take care of things. Um, so when, when uh, Mayhew started his own company in the mid-50s, to do this kind of work, uh, ultimately uh, Howard Hughes learned about him and wanted Mayhew to do certain jobs for him. So Mayhew did that. He would do, you know, investigations, or he would uh, help him take care of a problem, one kind or another. And Hughes really took a liking to Mayhew, and Mayhew to Hughes, and they became, uh, you know, close. When uh, after Noah Dietrich uh, was fired by Hughes in 1957. And then Hughes moved to Las Vegas. He uh, decided he needed somebody as his, you know, as his lead guy in Las Vegas. He he didn't want to bring guys in from Houston or from L.A. He needed somebody who knew the lay of the land in Las Vegas. And so he he he, he named Robert Mayhew his, you know, his man in, in Nevada. And Mayhew did a good job for him. Mayhew. Uh, uh, Made uh, developed a great relationship with the governor of Nevada, Paul Laxalt, at the time. He smoothed the way for Hughes to buy these casinos at a time when, and still true today, when if you want to gain a gaming license in Nevada, you need to personally appear in front of the gaming control board. And Hughes was a recluse at the time. He did not want to appear in front of anyone. And Somehow, Mayhew convinced the governor, Paul Laxalt, and the Game Control Board to grant licenses to Hughes, even though he was not showing up at the meetings. Right. So right. that was a big coup on Mayhew's part. Uh, now, ultimately, things went bad for Mayhew with Hughes. There's a, there's a whole other story associated with that. But uh, during, from 66 to 70, you know, they ultimately bought 
uh, six hotel casinos in Las Vegas and one in Reno. They bought property, they bought mining claims, they bought a TV station, they bought an airport, and more. One of the things you mentioned about the airport is how prescient Hughes was in terms of figuring out regional hubs, basically, for airlines, and, and the idea of basically supersonic transport. And he sort of predicted, in a way, what, what air travel will probably become and what it, what it was becoming with these, these major hubs around the world. Is that right? Well, yes and no. Um, uh, it turns out that the supersonic airplane, airplane was kind of a bust, right. although we have them. Uh, but he actually envisioned, I think this could happen in the future, but uh, we're still looking forward to that. But his his vision was uh, pretty interesting. It wasn't just his vision, it was others as well, but he wanted to take advantage of the supersonic you know, aircraft, and he had the vision that there would be a, a major terminal in southern Nevada uh, for the supersonic aircraft, and uh, that it would be like a regional hub for for transportation. That, there were a lot of other people who were on board with that in the late 60s, early 70s. It ultimately didn't come to pass uh, because, one, it's so expensive to, to, for those airplanes to operate. Um, and, and, two, you know, sort of the impracticality of, you know, being able to have to take, you know, how we love direct flights, right? Right, yes. Well, with, a, with one of these supersonic regional uh, uh, airports, you would still have to probably fly another short flight to get to the airport in order to get on the big plane. Right. So, you know, there's some impractical aspects to it. But but he, he, he was always looking forward, especially in the area of aviation. And, uh, you know, he as you alluded to earlier, I mean, his, his aircraft it was involved in a, in a cutting-edge technology in the 60s and 70s that ultimately um, resulted in all kinds of uh, ballistic missiles, as well as craft that landed on the moon. He was a brilliant engineer for all of his craziness, right? I mean, even even the Spruce Goose, he, did, he proved that it could fly. It was the largest airplane in the world, I believe, at the time, right? It was made out of wood because of World War II restrictions on other material, and he did he did at least fly it. And he, he did have a brilliant engineering mind, I guess that's fair to say. He did. He was an untrained mind. Uh, he was, you know, he, he learned on his own, but he... Uh, you know, one wonders what he could have done if he had stuck with engineering and, and gotten the proper degrees and then continued to focus on that, uh, and what he could have done with aircraft, what he could have done with other, uh, technologies. But he, uh, definitely played a key role in the development of these aircraft in the 30s that set records. Uh, you know, one of the things they came up with was the notion of retractable landing gear. And we take that for granted today, but retractable landing gear allowed for the plane to go faster because you had less, you know, uh, less op- fewer obstacles in the way. So that was one of his uh, one of his innovations. And another was the uh, flush rivet. So before uh, Hughes, rivets in the side of an airplane uh, would stick out a little bit, mm-hmm. and uh, he came up with the idea of those being flush again to reduce that wind resistance. So. They were there were all kinds of these little innovations that he was involved with that uh, that uh, really showed his engineering prowess. Okay, I want to get to some of the other things you mentioned. You, you mentioned that he used to talk to Paul Laxalt, as you said, who was the governor of Nevada. He was very close to President Reagan, as I think a senator later from Nevada. He he died recently, but I remember he used to call Paul, Paul Laxalt at all hours of the evening. You write in your book, and then Laxalt said to him, "Could you please only call me during during the day?" And then. Hughes did show consideration, and then did only call him during the day and never bothered him again at night. I mean, you mentioned that in your book. So he had some degree of consideration, I would guess, and some degree of, what, empathy? or um... Yeah, 
I mean, Hughes was an interesting character. I, I've been, I've done additional research since I published that book, and there are many instances where Hughes, at first, uh, you know, is fairly inconsiderate with with people. And, you know, he just literally, I think, he did not understand or appreciate that we all, most of us, live these sort of normal lives. Right. And uh, and that <laughs> that he didn't, uh, you know, he didn't really recognize that, you know, he was so different from everyone else. But if you were to point it out to him, oftentimes he would comply. So if you would rather him not call you at home at midnight. You know, he would eventually get the message and, and not do that. Uh, there was a, a journalist named Frank McCullough uh, in Los Angeles at the time who who was the, really the last reporter to ever, ever interview Hughes in, Hughes in person. And uh, McCullough was getting late-night calls uh, from Hughes, and, and Frank's wife was answering the phone, and eventually she had enough. <laughs> She's <laughs> yelling at Howard Hughes, you know, you know, stop calling us at this all hours of the night, you know. Right, and what, so he did. He did stop. And one of the things you mentioned too in your book is how Hughes was helpful to the government in Nevada for pushing the mafia out and giving it a lot of respectability. That a world class businessman like Hughes was was comfortable investing so much money in, in Nevada and really helped put the state on the map and help get the mob out. Is, is that fair to say? At least help. Yeah, I help would say so. You know, uh, the the casino industry in Las Vegas, uh, in particular, was built by the mob. That's just that's just what happened. Uh, starting in the nineteen 19- 40s, working into the 50s and 60s, organized crime uh, groups from all over the country were investing in casinos in Las Vegas, uh, and they were skimming from these casinos uh, off the top uh, to avoid taxation, and they were taking that money, uh, literally transporting it back to places like Chicago and Kansas City and, and Cleveland and New York, and that money was going into the pockets of the mob and mafia guys in those areas. Um, but uh, this couldn't go on forever. Uh, it, the gaming regulation was starting uh, in the 1960s to uh, uh, start taking a closer look at these groups, and Nevada was looking for a way to push them out eventually. And it turned out that Howard Hughes was the initial catalyst for that. Hughes bought six casinos in Las Vegas, and all of them had mob ties before he bought them. Okay. Uh, then, in 1969, and largely inspired by Hughes, uh, the state passed the Corporate Gaming Act. And the Corporate Gaming Act allowed for corporations to own casinos. One of the, let me explain that, because uh, before that, if you had a corporation and you wanted to own a casino, every owner of that casino had to be licensed. In other words, had to undergo a background check and, and pass licensing. Well... If you're a corporation, you have hundreds, perhaps thousands of shareholders, and every one of them would have to be licensed, and that was not going to go very well, either from a practical standpoint or for the shareholders who might not want to do that. Well, the Corporate Gaming Act determined that only the key employees of the of the corporation needed to be licensed, that everyone else didn't. And this really opened the door for a lot of corporations in the 70s to start investing in Las Vegas. And they had a lot more money than the mob did, and they really cleaned things up eventually. Okay. I want to get now to the last few years of his life and then obviously get your opinion on his legacy. One of the things you mentioned in his book is that Bill Gay, who was sort of his chief aide of the Mormon, had his brother-in-law who eventually took over the treatment of, of Hughes, Dr. Wilbert. Wilbur Thane, I think his name was, and basically they basically conspired to make sure that Hughes doesn't really see a lot of outside doctors, keep him very drugged up, 
you mentioned also that um, gay salary goes from 100000 to 500000 which is a tremendous amount of money in the 70s, as well as Chester Davis, and a, lot of, a lot of legal billing, and you know, taking exotic trips, going to Europe, running private jets, going to Switzerland, having pretty much a, a grand time on his money. Um, and then the last six, he, he's convinced basically to fire Mayhew, right? But, because Mayhew could not be controlled by gay, as I sort of understand it. And then, and then he's also convinced to, to leave Las Vegas in 1970 to avoid being subpoenaed litigation with Mayhew, obviously, who, who fought his firing. And then he becomes like a flying Dutchman. He goes to England, he goes to Nicaragua, he goes to the Bahamas and Canada. I mean, just like constantly on the goal, uh, on the move. And his weight drops to like, he's six foot four, something like 115 pounds. I mean, that's a very sad time in his life, I, I, I would imagine. I mean, th- those last six years. Yeah, I think so. And and Hughes was uh, suffering, um, uh, had health problems, and you know he obviously had this addiction. Uh, he was very reclusive. He was paranoid about a lot of things. And I believe this group of aides. I'm not the only one who believes this, but I believe that this group of of executives um, uh, with the uh, through the aides uh, who were closest to Hughes, uh, manipulated him. They took advantage of him, and they were really running the show, uh, and especially in the last about three years of Hughes's life when he was not very engaged at all. Right. And uh, these guys, it was a power. It was, they wanted the power. Uh, they wanted the money. And they uh, saw that Hughes was not needed. In other words, he was needed to be alive, perhaps, but he... They didn't need him to be making decisions. They were comfortable doing it themselves, and and this is what this is how they did it. They they isolated Hughes from outside. Uh, Hughes had a an actual friend named Jack Real R E A L, and Jack Real was someone who Hughes knew from the late fifties on, who was very inv- in, very involved with aviation, and he was at Lockheed at one time, and so Hughes got to know him and really like him. In the 70s, uh, Hughes wanted, when he was lucid, he had made decisions. He wanted Jack Reel to become much more involved with his company and to, you know, really be on a level with Bill Gay and some of these other guys. Um, well, that was supposed to happen, but Bill Gay didn't let it happen. Right. Bill Gay maneuvered and manipulated things in such a way that Jack Reel was pushed out. And one of the ways he was pushed out was the aides the, on the, on, you know, with Hughes, literally did not allow Real to visit him. Physically did not allow him into the room to see Hughes and talk to him. And this is when you're getting into what I would characterize as sort of criminal behavior. Um, uh, and then they were also influencing him by the drugs. I mean, they the drugs became, he becomes so, you know, uh, such an addict that anybody who was in control of the drugs became in control of Hughes. Right, right. And, and that's how they manipulated him. And they often was, they would, you know, increase the doses uh, when they wanted him to uh, be out of it. They would decrease the doses when they wanted to uh, make him suffer, you know, for whatever reason. Yeah. And um, they would threaten, you know, that, uh, the, you know, the drug supply is running short. You know, we need to do this or that and the other thing. And so he would, of course, comply. And they even made him sell Hughes tools during that period because they couldn't control Hughes tools and they wanted... A liquidity, so he cashed out the family cash cow too. One of the things that's kind of sad too is 
a few years after he leaves Las Vegas, he's ending up in London. He ends up traveling. He ends up flying a plane over London. He takes mm-hmm. all of his clothes off. I think Jack Reel is there. And then, a few, and then yep. shortly afterwards, he goes back to the hotel and he breaks his hip. And then from that point on, he has you know is completely dependent upon them. And is basically his life is over uh, until he dies very sadly. One of the things I thought your book did a good job too is, is talking about Melvin Dumar and that supposedly that that will. When I was young, I saw growing up that movie Melvin and Howard, and uh, this is yep. the idea that that Howard Hughes had secret snuck out of um, that hotel in Las Vegas, had had, um, had a motorcycle accident or somehow been on the highway and then seen Melvin Dumar at his gas station and then later given him a will which given him a, a lot of money. But you basically debunked that saying that he never left, uh, he never left his um, desert inn. He was afraid of atomic dust you know, floating around the atmosphere. He even gave money to two different presidents to lower the atomic testing in Nevada. And I think he did get he didn't get it stopped, but he got it lowered. So I think you do a good job of really destroying Melvin Dumar. You don't put any credence into that story, do you? Well, I, I don't. And I want to say, you know, though, that I, I met Melvin Dumar in person. Okay. And I uh, talked to him many times in preparation for that book and after the book came out. And I liked Melvin a lot. You know, he passed away recently. Right. And... um uh, I liked him a lot, and I, I came to believe that he believed what he was telling us. In other words, he believed that he picked up someone in the desert that ultimately he came to believe was Howard Hughes, and he came to believe that this will uh, was something uh, that had come from Hughes and that he was owed this money as a, you know, as one of the people named in the will. The problem is the facts don't support Melvin's story. Uh, there's n- there's no evidence, zero evidence that Hughes um, left the Desert Inn during the time he was there, from '66 to '70. He just it would have been completely unrealistic for Hughes, especially on his own, to have left the hotel at that time. First of all, he could barely walk a lot of the time. Right. Uh, he was you know he had blood transfusions. He had all kinds of medical problems. He was cooped up. And he was, he was a mess. And so the notion that he's going to, you know, look presentable and then go out into the middle of the desert for some reason, uh, is just, it just doesn't add up. Right. Now, I, I think though that it is entirely possible that Melvin Dumar picked up somebody out in the desert. It's also possible that person, for whatever their reasons were, told him he was Howard Hughes, you know, so that he could get something out of him, you know, whether it was a ride to Las Vegas or, or whatever. Um, and I, t- I speculate in the book on some of those uh, possible scenarios that, that led to Dumar believing he picked somebody up. Uh, as for the will itself, you know, the, what they came to be known as the Mormon will, yeah, I, somebody again. I, as I mentioned, I I've spent a lot of time with Melvin Dumar, and I never identified a devious bone in the guy's body. Okay, I, I suspect somebody cooked up this will. You know, he might have known about it, and he was staying mum. But I just don't think Melvin was the was the mastermind behind this fake will. Somebody was. Somebody was looking at this as an opportunity to take advantage of the Hughes estate. But I don't believe it was Melvin himself. 
Okay. I, I, I want to ask you about his legacy. Before I do that, just one question about your discussion with Gordon Magulis, his aide who he got to know, because uh, I really haven't spoken to anyone who, who was with Hughes as you have during those last years of his life. Did Gordon Margulis, did he like Hughes? Did he think of him as, as, as an interesting person? I mean, was there any, what was his feelings personally towards Hughes? And what was the feeling of the other aides that, from, from your discussions with them? As far as what, I know obviously they were, they were being well paid by gay and they were ultimately loyal to gay, but did they like Hughes? Did they find him interesting? What, what was their opinion of him as, as a person? In, in regard to the, the aides who worked most closely with Hughes in his latter years, um, I, I've talked, I talked to some of them, including Gordy Margulis. I also read their accounts of their experiences with Hughes. And one of the things that we have to remember is that, you know, Hughes was world famous and, and in the papers most of his life because of his incredibly uh, interesting life and his, his uh, charm, really. Right. I mean, he dated some of the most famous and beautiful women in the world for years and years. Um, like Kathy he, you know, had in, in, yes, and he engaged with all of these high-level business people and political people. He was an engaging individual, and he had a lot of interesting things to say. So when he was lucid, I think these guys really enjoyed Howard Hughes. They really enjoyed working for him. They were very loyal to him, and I think they enjoyed speaking with him. I know Gordy did. Gordy Gargoulis had a lot of interesting conversations with Hughes, even if they were brief. You know, it was just the opportunity to be close to somebody like that. Okay. Um, uh, but uh, I think there were some aides who, uh, you know, was, somehow they were they were just doing a job and they were they were loyal to Bill Gay. And then, unfortunately, what we ended up seeing is they were more loyal to Bill Gay than they were to Howard Hughes because they were participating in this manipulation later in his life. And to me, that's one of my. You know, looking back, if I were to say something, I would say, gosh, why didn't a couple of these aides come forward into the media or to the law enforcement uh, agency, wherever they were, and say, guys, this is not right. This is all shouldn't be happening. This guy needs proper medical care. He needs to get off these drugs, et cetera. And, and none of them ever did that, you know. You know, and uh, that was a real unfortunate thing. It's kind of funny because the Elvis was sort of in the same situation as, as you may yep. remember. Before he died, a few of his aides they they were fired, but they did come forward and say that. And, and of course, Elvis died shortly thereafter. Anyway, just in, in summing up Howard Hughes's legacy, um, would you agree with me that Howard Hughes is kind of like a Steve Jobs, a stubborn? difficult person but someone who pushes the world forward i mean jobs did that in design and in in computers and in case of jobs in case of a hughes it was aviation aviation and movies and things of that nature but he sort of he pushed us forward for all of his craziness and his difficultiness and eccentricities would you agree with that i i think there's no question about that i think hughes was uh one of the more important people uh, in the United States in the 20th century. He he uh, pushed, as you described it, in uh, in the movies, the movie business, um, in uh, aviation for sure. Uh, he made a, a big impact on Las Vegas. He had a huge impact on uh, Hollywood, and not just in terms of the movie he made, but the way he he did things there. It wasn't all positive, but you know he was uh, you know he was a, a major mover and shaker during the golden years of Hollywood. And you know there's a lot of a lot of young actresses who uh, got their start with him, and and that uh, he recognized as potential stars, and he brought them forward. So there are these individual legacies, you know, with different uh, 
people he brought up, uh, then there are the larger legacies. And I think perhaps none bigger than his role in Las Vegas and his impact on this city, uh, which, you know, is felt and still being felt today. Uh, uh, the, the land that he secured around Las Vegas that now has built up into the, one of the biggest master plan communities in the world, uh, the uh, uh, impact Summer, he had on the casino industry. Summerlin, right? Uh, and, you know, Summerlin is yeah. what we're referring to. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, so, yes, I, I would agree that Hughes was uh, influential in many different ways, and we're still seeing the positive impacts of that. He was certainly an American original. Well, thank you so much for discussing your book, Howard Hughes, Power, Paranoia, and Palace Intrigue. It's been a pleasure speaking with you and talking about Howard Hughes, and thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Good day.